can do it a lot. Yeah, no. You just watch your mouth, show some respect. Right in the balls. Oh, go get me started on the Native American. Oh my god. Welcome back to the bull. No, no, no. no. That was yesterday. Welcome back to the Renaissance. Yes. The Renaissance. Show, uh, episode 69, your favorite I, number. Yes, one. absolutely. That's, that's the only reason I showed up. I thought maybe there would be some 69 references. We'll find out the next two hours. Well, that's. <laughs> That's going to happen on our first Caligula shows. Uh, 69 here, 69 there, 69 everywhere. Oh, uh, there's so much 69 <laughs> going on in the Caligula movie. Um, yes. This uh, Today we're, we're, we're doing a Gutenberg Part 5. Right. This will be. Um, continuing the story of the man who made all of this possible by inventing Yay. books. Uh, now, where we got up to last time, I think, mm-hmm. Ray, we were talking about the fact that we, we sort of explained a little bit about uh, how he got screwed over a little <coughs> bit with the Bible. We yeah. talked about some of his earlier earliest works, um, the uh, Sibylline prophecies that he printed. Right. And uh, the uh, did we talk about the Donatus calendar that he produced, the DK type? Um, and then I, I think we talked about the fact that the first book that he printed uh, properly was the Ars Minor of Aelius Donatus the most widely distributed book of the 15th century. Apparently, this was the book that taught Latin grammar that he would have learned from himself as a young lad. Wow. Would have learned his Latin. Mm-hmm. And uh, was the perfect project. Uh, if, you, if you're going to introduce a new version of a book and you want to profit from it, you, you get the most popular book of the day. Uh, and that was the uh, Ars Minor. So uh, that's what he set to work on as his, his very first proper book that he printed. Yeah, that was a good business decision because that's always going to be in demand. I'm trying to remember at least a couple hundred, if not a thousand years. I'm trying to remember that's been around. It's only 28 pages long after doing something like the Bible. This is cake work for him, but this is a good business decision. And uh, there are still fragments of what he printed around that are on parchment or vellum. Uh, obviously, the animal skins last longer than paper does. And still, you know, over a 10-year period, he probably printed thousands of copies of this, you know, probably two or 300 copies of each edition over 10 years. So again, that was a good cash cow, if you will, and he needed it considering everything he's been through so far. Now, just, just staying on the uh, Ars mm-hmm. Minor, right. so uh, Alice Donatus, you said about a 1,000 years. Yeah, a bit, bit, a bit longer than wow. that, probably 1,200 years. It was written, it was sort of the mid-4th century, around the 350s, something like that. Alias Donatus was a teacher of rhetoric, mm-hmm. And uh, he apparently produced a number of works, including a life of Virgil that uh, scholars think might have been based on uh, an earlier version written by Suetonius, which is now lost. Right. And his Ars Grammatica, and you know, it was so popular as a school book in the Middle Ages that his name became an eponym for any sort of treaties on any port, called a Donet. Wow. Named from Donatus. So, you know, a bit like liquid paper uh, or, or um, what, what are the tissues? What's the big brand of tissues? Maybe Kleenex. Kleenex. Uh, Kleenex. Or Xerox. Yes. We call it, like, hey, Xerox, Xerox a copy exactly. of that. No, you're making a copy, but yeah. it's, it's synonymous or whatever. Yeah, an eponym. His name became the thing. You want to talk about um, uh, a treatise on any subject, you called it a Donette. So that's 
That's pretty successful. Can I just... No, that's, that's... I want to go out on a limb here, if I may. Take a moment and just say your book on psychopaths, I think will have the same run as Donatus. At least a thousand years, probably 1,200 years, because psychopaths aren't going anywhere. They're still going to run things. They're still going to mm. have sex and have babies. They're not going anywhere. So I see at, at least a good 1,200-year run for your book. That's my prediction. Unless your mother nukes them. <laughs> That's right. Hopefully she doesn't feel the way she feels about uh, the Middle East. Uh, she, hopefully she doesn't start feeling that way about Australia because Fox News has told her to nuke them all, let God decide, but at least all the all problems will be solved. I was very scared. Yeah. Yeah. Why stop there? Nuke us all. Nuke all of us. <laughs> let God sort us out. Oh, Thanos. Um, yeah, that's right. Now, Donatus, by the way, uh, was also one of the earliest proponents of using a system of punctuation. Oh, that's right. He would put dots in different places in the book right. to, to suggest longer pauses, basically the equivalents to commas, colons, and full stops. And his right. system of punctuation lasted until the 7th century when Isidore of Seville came out with a, a better system of punctuation. But this guy was Still, a bit of come a badass. On. Rock star. How's he not a rock star? How does everybody yeah. not know this name? That's incredible. Yeah, I, I've never heard of him before. Me neither. So, uh, I was fascinated <laughs> to learn a little bit about him. Yeah. So, um, not, not, uh, none, none of the copies the, of, of this book that Gutenberg printed that have survived a complete. We right. do have some, you know, partial copies of it that have survived. But most of them, like his uh, Sibylline Prophecies book, most of the fragments of his Ars Minor that have survived are found in the bindings of other books. Oh, wow. And those books were crushed up and used in binding. No, right. Don't do that gag again. Um, <laughs> in Mines and Basil. So um, fascinating that it was very popular in its time, mm. but at some point, people went, eh, yeah. you know, we don't need this. We'll just cut it up and make other books out of this book. Right. And it's had its day. So maybe other, maybe other editions came out right. that were superior in some way. I don't really know why they decided to toss his out. They, scholars estimate that Gutenberg printed at least 24 different editions. Oh, my of God. The Ars Donatus. Oh my God! What are they like, changing? Um, what you know? the hell are they? Are just they printed as many as they printed? They need some more, so they do another print run. I guess is the better way to think Probably of it. Yeah. That. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was so popular. He just had to keep doing new editions. Money, money, bills, y'all. That's what it was all about. <laughs> he was just cash cow. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 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 Smart. Yeah. Now all of the fragments that we have of this are printed on parchment or vellum, not on paper. Right. Because, I think as we've talked about, uh, animal skins last longer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these, these are collector's editions that he's putting out here. He's not doing any cheap shit. Right. When he's putting this thing out, he's putting out the, the gold standard edition. It's, it's nicely printed and uh, on vellum. So... It will last f for centuries, but then people were like, hmm, not, mm. not if we cut it up and use it in other books. <laughs> the irony. The irony. Yeah. yeah. But he was, he was making money, now, so hey. Well, yes, but he was. But as we've explained before, at this juncture, mid-1400s, parchment and vellum were hard to come by and, and relatively expensive, so... Oh, yeah the print runs would have been small if he's printing them all on parchment or vellum, which is probably why he did 24 different editions of the work. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. But yes, thousands and thousands of books, probably over 10 or more years. Now, when did he first print the Donatus, right? Right. Well, see, it depends on what you believe because you and I talked about his time in Strasbourg, but again, we don't know exactly what he was doing. So some scholars think that Gutenberg, who the ones who think that he was printing back in Strasbourg, put his earliest Donatus works maybe in 1442, which makes sense. But for those who think that he really didn't get up and running with his printing until he was back in Mainz, put it at 1448 and maybe 1452. So 
the point is, we it's just one more thing that we don't know about this guy because he was so secretive, which is a shame because it would be great to be able to celebrate him more. There's just so much we don't know. Yeah, and, and obviously we don't have any surviving copies of the books, which may have had dates in them, oh, um, right. so we may have been able to trace them all. But that's somewhere in that ten year period mm-hmm. he started printing the first, the first book, yeah, the first printed Damn. book right. in history. Not bad. Uh, came came out somewhere between fourteen forty two and fourteen fifty two. I mean, just like. I just want to stop for a moment and, and yeah. think about the impact that that had on human civilization. Think about all of the all of the ideas and the revolutions and the the uh, movements Pamphlets that have and, started yes, absolutely. in the last five hundred and uh, seventy years yeah. because somebody read a book, right, uh, and, and and it got them thinking about stuff, the podcasts that have been created as the result of his effort. Well, how many times have we mentioned, and I guess it was, I can't remember, but I guess it was the Cold War show, we were talking about Lenin when he was a young man, we were talking about Stalin when he was a young man working on newspapers, Mussolini and other guys, I mean, that's what you do, you take books, you take prints, whether it's pamphlets or magazines, uh, newspapers, books, but it allows you to spread ideas, it allows you to spread information, it also allows you to lie and persuade people as the church is going to find out this stuff is very useful so the idea of being able to manipulate a wider audience at a faster pace using the print and i'm not and i'm not trying to be negative on purpose but that's certainly one aspect of the printing press but obviously with the stuff like the renaissance that is that is now coming um yeah just an idea to get information out there that could be used to improve people's lives it can now be put out at a much faster and relatively cheaper rate Revolutionary. Yeah, he's one of he's one of these guys. I'd love to go back in the TARDIS, yeah. grab him, bring him forwards to today, oh, and walk him through. I can help the you with Library that. of Congress. He's like, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to fucking tell you. Who the fuck are you? I don't. What the fuck's the podcast? Who the fuck? Are you? I don't tell anybody. Shit. I don't write anything. Just down. get in the blue box, you dickhead. I want to show you something. Jesus Christ! <laughs> difficult. You and Brunelleschi, god damn. I tried to show him that his dome was still standing 600 years later. I know it is. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) God, fuck you. I'm going to burn your book fucking printing press. You have to spend another 10 years. Go ahead, bitch. It's not mine. The other guy took it. Foost, son of a bitch. I mean, yeah, burn his, but yeah, I mean, this guy, this guy, you get the sense that this guy was brilliant, driven, maybe a little paranoid, secretive. Intense. He was. He was. He was probably an intense individual who I would not wanted to have worked for. That kind of makes him like an Australian. Oh, <laughs> oh my laugh there sounded very much like Joker's laugh. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, um, now, one of the other commercial opportunities he had early on for his printing press. Wasn't wasn't a book so much as they were political pamphlets right. that that came about because of the fall of Constantinople in fourteen fifty three. Now this is something I think we need to stop and talk about. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. the end of the Roman Empire right. officially. The other the, the other, other Roman Roman Empire. <laughs> the, the we started this series yeah. talking about the uh, end of the. Western Roman Empire. Right. Finally, here we are, Aww. nigh on pretty much or exactly a thousand years later, <laughs> with the fall of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Bookends, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So the Ottoman Empire at the time was being led by 21 year old Sultan Mehmed II. Right. And he defeated the army. Of Constantine the Eleventh, mm. Paleologos, nice the last Byzantine emperor, the AKA the Marble <laughs> Emperor. Oh, nice. Now, as legend goes, right. as the Ottoman army was entering the city of Constantinople, an angel appeared. Sure. As they do. Right. <clears throat> and turned Constantine into a beautiful marble statue, Aww. which was then hidden in a cave. <clears throat> 
under the Golden Gate. Pretty sure Joseph Smith came up with this story when he was inventing the Mormons. It's very, very much a Joseph Smithian oh kind of God. story, this. Right. And there it remains until the day the emperor will be brought back to life sure. so he can reclaim the city for the Christians. But what's supposed to bring him, what's the triggering event or whatever that's supposed to bring him back to life? Do we know what that is? Or is it just going to happen when? Yes, it's when your mother uh, <laughs> nukes, nukes the Middle East, I think is. Don't tempt her. Pretty... She should be like, where's the button? Just show me the fucking button. Push, 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 push. Please don't. Please don't do that. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know what the trigger is. But when we were in Athens. Right. A little bit over a year ago, um, I saw a very nice statue of Constantine the Eleventh, right in uh, Metropolios Square. Uh, it wasn't made out of marble; it was made out of copper. It was only made in 1990. So, but uh, mm-hmm. Chrissy and Fox and I were walking around. I can't remember why or where we were going, but we went on a big walk, and we stumbled across this little square, lovely statue, which I posted some photos of on oh, cool. I think Instagram at the time. Right. And there's a beautiful little uh, Orthodox church there that we went inside. Absolutely, absolutely stunning. Beautiful. Right. Like just decked out with <laughs> beautiful artworks and that kind of stuff inside it. Right. Why are you snickering? No, just all the money that could have been spent helping people. But anyway, we don't need to go into that. Just the oh right, yes. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's not like it wasn't like the. In fact, it was the opposite of the Vatican, okay. which I found tacky. Uh, this was Gaudy. this was beautiful. Yeah. Oh, really, I, I got you. really really beautifully done. Tasteful. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you some photos. Tasteful. Yeah, it was lovely. All right. I don't know where you were at the time. You're off get, chasing some skirt get, or something. I don't get know. an ice cream. Remember, we used yeah. the code getting ice cream. God. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Um. Now, poor Constantine the Eleventh had only been emperor since 1449, a couple of years, and then the Ottoman Sultan Murad had died in 1451, and his son, Mehmed II, took over. He wanted to conquer Constantinople, so he marched on it with 70,000 men. Shall we? How big was Constantine the Eleventh's army, Ray? Oh, uh, that's easy. If you take 70,000 and you take a zero off and you're left with 7,000, he roughly had 7,000 men to defend the Western Wall, the Theodosian Wall. Um, So, yeah, so good for him. But he's got God on his side, so it's all good. The only remaining Roman Empire has... (laughs) Has seven thousand men in its army to defend itself yeah. against the Ottomans. Wow. Well, that's uh, yeah. I mean, we don't have we don't have to go into this, but obviously, um, being in the position where it was, Constantinople was obviously, you know, laid siege to plenty of times in the past. It was actually sacked in twelve oh four with the I think it was the Fourth Crusade. We don't have to go into that, but the point is between yeah, we do. Okay, we can go into that as well. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so um. So for the Fourth Crusade, and you probably have read a lot more about this than I have, but uh, the irony of how it, um, Constantinople was sacked, uh, I found amazing. So the Fourth Crusade, I'll just give some basic outlines. Uh, the, the Fourth Crusade lasted from 1202 to 1204. Pope Innocent III um, wanted to recapture the Muslim-controlled city of Jerusalem. But first, they decided they would have to go by and conquer Egypt, which was at the time the strongest Muslim state. So you don't want to be able to take Constantinople and have enemies in your back. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. So in January 1203, en route to Jerusalem, the, the Crusaders uh, enter into agreement with the Byzantine prince. Alexios Angelos, I'm probably saying his name wrong, to divert the crusade to Constantinople to re-restore his deposed father as emperor. So not exactly starting off uh, great. They kind of got diverted and now they're basically going to a place they shouldn't have been, you know, going at all. But um, they needed the money. They needed the funds because if they could put this guy back on the throne, he was supposed to give them uh, financial and economic aid. So it became a necessity and let's face it, this is all about money and power and control anyway. So the point is they're, they're going to rock up to Constantinople. 
Yeah, so this all goes back to the Great Schism right. uh, of 1054, more or less, mm. which I want to talk about. Um, but, yeah, the reason Constantine's army was so small is that the Byzantine economy was, was fucked. Right. Um, and the plague. And to a large... To a lot, you well, yeah, of course, always the plague. <laughs> You've got to have the plague, but it was mostly because of the Catholics, right? Now, of course, the 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 Christians in Constantinople, uh, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, the Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, don't get along. Um, and when Constantinople was being besieged by the Ottomans in 1452 or whatever, right. he um, uh, Constantine appealed to the West, to the Catholics sure, for help. Sure, sure, sounds good. And they they basically just gave him the stink <laughs> eye. Now, they had just had, uh, prior to this, a big council, the Council of Florence, paid for by our friend uh, Cosimo de' Medici, nice. to try and reunify the East and West churches, uh, bring them together, which they tried a number of times before. But this goes back, as I said, to the Great Schism, that's been going on since 1054 uh, officially, although the, the genesis of it goes way back. Right. Theological disputes between the East and the West and over stupid shit. <laughs> you know, at the beginning of this series, we were talking about early Christianity. Right. Um, you, you know, I, I'm sure I pointed out, and this you know, large chunk of my movies about this, is that even from the very beginning, immediately after Jesus died, if Jesus lived at all, uh, when Paul and Peter and James are arguing amongst themselves over stupid shit right. and debating stuff, Christians have been arguing with each other about you know minor theological points ever since, and, and splitting off in divisions right. and killing each other, and you know uh, going to war yeah. with each other. Yeah. We talked about the Goths uh, sacking Rome. The Goths were Christians. The Romans were Christians, but they hated each other. <laughs> This had been going on, Christians hating Christians, Christian on Christian violence, nothing sexier than that, been going on since day one, pretty much. Yeah. I, um, yeah. yeah. I tried to read some of the discrepancies, because you're right, so between 10, before 1054, it's still technically one church. They just are, they have several interpretations on these different subjects. And I'm not going to go into it, but the procession of the Holy Spirit, the whole leavened and unleavened bread for the Eucharist, the Bishop of Rome's claim on universal jurisdiction, the whole see of Constantinople in relation to the Petarchy. So, so again, they, they have these things that to us sound ridiculous, but they, because they, I guess, either truly believed or wanted power. These were their very real arguments. And yes, centuries before 1054, the Great Schism, there had been excommunications, there had been wars, there had been bribes, there had been assassination attempts, there had been battles. I mean, these two are going at each other. And by the time they actually need to help each other, they're both a lot weaker than what they would have been had they not been tearing at each other for centuries. And I blame Jesus oh, for all yeah, of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because... Jesus. Well, it, it, if... if uh, <laughs> If the stories about Jesus in the gospel are at all accurate, right. and, um, and I don't think they are, but if they were, and even, even the fact that they're not, the fact that they said Jesus said these things is what matters. Jesus is walking around Palestine in the 20s, and he's, he's basically getting into arguments with the Jews of the time, mm -mm. The, the Pharisees, right. about... Theological debates. No, you're you're wrong right. and you're idiots and I'm right and you're wrong and all this kind of stuff. And they basically set the template for Christians ever since ah, arguing with each other. Point. If Jesus had walked around Jerusalem uh, and the Middle East, Judea in the 20s, saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's all good. It's all good. Bring it yeah, all in. You it know, doesn't we, matter. I don't, we, love each other. It doesn't matter. Let's not argue over right. stupid shit. Let's right. just love, exactly. Let's just love each other. I listen. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Look, we may have our disagreements. Right. Sure. But at the end of the day, we're all one people. Right. We all. We're all part of the same society, the same race. Let's just bring it Let's in. Help. Give me a hug, bitch. You you if it was more like the dude. You know, it, it, everything uh, would be different. Right. But no, yeah. he had to be a stickler yeah. uh, and get into fucking stand-up arguments with these guys yeah. and say, you're fucked, you're going to hell, fuck you, yeah. you don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh, uh, God's going to curse the Jews and the blood of your children and all this kind of stuff. So he set the template. Jesus is the template for Christian intolerance. Jeez. 
And then it followed on Paul and Peter and these guys fought against each other and Peter and James probably had Paul arrested and, uh, and, and executed by the Romans. And it just went on and on and on. Right. So as you say, things like uh, the procession of the Holy Spirit was one of the big issues between the East and the West. It's called the filioque. Uh, one word added to the Nicene <laughs> Creed by some Latin churches right. in the 6th century. Um, we talked about the Nicene Creed mm-hmm. in, in some of our early episodes about the Dark Ages. Um, this word, the filioque, means that it added that the Holy Spirit came from the Son as well as God the Father. Right. The, the line in the Nicene Creed is, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Some right. of the Latin, the, the Roman, the Western churches, tagged on and the Son, and the Eastern churches lost their <laughs> shit over that. They're like, well, that's you not can... in the original Nicene Creed. Right. You can't just add shit yeah, to it. They're like, well, we've thought about it. We think that's not fair to Jesus. He's upset about yeah. the fact that he didn't get a look in Holy there. Trinity. And they're like, come on. Yeah. 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 Um, so they, and they argued over all this stuff, as you said, whether it should be leavened or unleavened bread used in the Eucharist. Like, come on, like, fucking seriously, <laughs> right. we're going to go to war over what kind of bread we're using. <laughs> fucking hell. Um, and of course the bishop, as you said, the Bishop of Rome, yeah. uh, AKA yeah. the Pope wanted to be the boss yeah. of the worldwide church. This is mines. All this yeah. is mines. Um, yeah. Why Rome? I mean, again, the... The, the whole Rome thing doesn't make any sense. It would make more sense if the Bishop of Jerusalem was the head oh, of the Holy Church right. because supposedly Peter was uh, made the head of the church by Jesus, even though Peter's faction of the church died out with, within about 30 years. Um, mm. Paul is really the father of the church and he wasn't a bishop of anything. But anyway, don't get me fucking <laughs> started on that. Um, they, they were arguing over whether or not, whether, whether or not purgatory was a real thing. But all of this started after the fall of Rome. I want to provide sort of the historical context to this. So after the fall of Rome, Mm -hmm. obviously East and West are divided. And quite quickly, the the languages between the two divide. The West spoke Latin, the East spoke Greek. And over time, not many people spoke both languages. You remember we've talked about in the Renaissance, guys like... um, uh, oh. uh, uh, jerking off all over women. What's the name? Um, well, they brought over people to teach in the university. Uh, Greek. Oh, I can't remember names. The 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 Decameron. But 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 a but a but not Botticelli. Um, oh. oh, what is wrong with my brain oh. today? Bukaki. Bukakio. Right. See, I knew it was coming all over women. See, I got it. My brain works in mysterious <laughs> yes, ways. It does. Bukakio um, mm. brought over a Greek uh, teacher right. they, they, to, to teach the, the Florentines Greek because no one in Florence knew how to speak Greek. And this had happened fairly, fairly early after the fall of Rome. Um, West spoke Latin, the East spoke Greek. They couldn't really talk to each other. Wow. And so religious rites developed independently of each other over time. Um, and and they did, weren't really showing. Well, we're adding this and we're adding that, and, but they couldn't communicate. Now, yeah, you would you might think that they would all speak to Jesus about it, and he'd sure. sort it all out, sure. act like a heavenly Dropbox, basically <laughs> keeping them both in sync. Because uh, maybe maybe he couldn't speak both languages either. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe uh, you know his uh, 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 you know had the Tardis. Right. Has a universal translator Boom. built into it. Yeah. So no matter where you go, it sounds like everyone's speaking English. Um, that's maybe Jesus could have just. But no. He needed a task. He, that was his problem. Yeah. There's only one. So doesn't belong to him. I don't know. No, there's lots. Is there? I've known lots of Tardis. No yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Tardis is a. Fairly, fairly common on Gallifrey. It's just the doctor <laughs> stole one um, and took off at it. He's a rebel. Right. Yeah. Anywho, <laughs> Jesus apparently had better things to do with his time than to keep the East and the West in sync. Now, there was also a lot of ethnic tensions between the East and the West that developed over time. They, they had this religious tension. Right. You're fake Christians. No, you're fake Christians. <laughs> you're faker. But also right. ethnic tensions. Then one of the big things that happened um, was the massacre of the Latins in 1182. Mm. 
This happens uh, a little bit before the Fourth Crusade. In the 11th century, lots of Latins were moving to Byzantium for for trade reasons. Merchants from Venice and Genoa and Pisa who had all of the money. They they had the naval supremacy, the wealth. So they were moving to Byzantium to trade with the East Mm -hmm. uh, and causing lots of economic and social upheaval in the process because they they had all of the money. So real estate prices were going up, uh, inflation was going up, the locals uh, couldn't compete with the the wealth of these uh, you know Italian uh, uh, trader uh, uh, um, fortunes mm-hmm. that had been developed because of the whole situation you know Byzantium was still very much a, a feudal society Italy as we've talked about had had sort of broken away and developed these city states and right. there was the rise of the merchant class and all of these kind of stuff then these then these fuckers turn up in Byzantium and they're like. <laughs> Dollar dollar bills, y'all. They're like flicking their money <laughs> well, out all over the, the place. They're, it's a new empire. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're doing cookers and, and oh. cookers, <laughs> hookers and coke. We just combine the two now. It's just cookers. When I, I say cookers, I mean coke I and hookers. Yeah, cookers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they just got cookers going on, and uh, they're, they're at the club with the bub yeah. and uh, driving Bentleys, and 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 you know they got it all going on. Right. It's like a rap video, and they get. The, um, so lots of upheavals, lots of Christian-on-Christian violence happens as a result. In 1180, it's estimated that up to 60,000 Latins lived in Constantinople. Shit. And the tensions built and built until the Byzantine emperor, Manuel I, died in 1180, and his widow, Maria of Antioch, who was herself a Latin princess... right acted as the regent to their infant son, Alexios II Komnenos, and she showed favoritism to the Latins because she, they were her peeps, right? Right. right. And uh, she's like, yeah, come on in. Yeah, you get all the good shit. Buy the houses. Fuck the locals. I don't even care. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm their queen, but I don't give a fuck. Right. Like, they're all Greek. It's all Greek to me, <laughs> motherfucker. And... So she was overthrown uh, a couple of years later in April 1182 by uh, Manuel, her husband's first cousin, Andronikos, the first Komnenos. And when he took over, he was pro-Greek. There was immediate backlash against the Latins, which he kind of turned a blind eye to. Mm -hmm. The the massacre was pretty much indiscriminate. Uh, Women, children, nobody was spared. Latin patients lying in hospital beds were murdered in their hospital beds. Oh, my God. Uh, houses, churches, charities were looted. Courage. Latin clergymen yeah. got special attention. Uh, no. One example I read about was the Cardinal John, mm-hmm. the papal legate in the area, who was beheaded and his head was dragged through the streets at the tail of a dog. Oh, God. Jeez. Do you have anything on the massacre of no. the Latins you want to talk about? No, that's. But I do prefer if you are going to cut, if you are going to drag me through the streets or my head, please remove it from my body first. I tend to feel less that way, so he, you know, it could have been worse for him. I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, now, so the Fourth Crusade was payback for the massacre of the Latins. Right. So. When the Latins go into Constantinople in 1202-1204, this is payback for what had happened to their peeps. So then they come in and they're looting the churches. They destroyed the imperial library. They converted eastern churches into western churches. And they established the Latin Empire in Constantinople, which lasted about 60 years. Right. It was wasn't much more than just the city itself, a little like me declaring myself the emperor of Brisbane. Uh, <laughs> Which he's done several times. Actually, I don't... Put, I, put on, yeah, I don't mind the sound of that. Put, put, on, the, on put that. on the Napoleon hat in your office. Make yeah. that statement on YouTube or whatever. Yeah, I, I just want to mention real quick, yeah, so when the Fourth uh, Crusade gets going and, they, and the Crusaders end up there, this is what, June 23rd of 1203, the bulk of the Crusaders are there, and the Pope excommunicates the Crusader army because they weren't doing what they were supposed to. And like you said, this guy, Alexios, gets made co-emperor, but they're not going to get the, the Crusaders are not going to get the money that they thought they were going to get. So the 
Fourth Crusade's not going very well, but this guy is so unpopular, he's eventually killed, I think, the following year. You know, the Latins eventually do come in, but... Which, hey, yeah, hey, yeah. which guy? This guy? Who's this guy? Uh, Alexius, about? Which guy? Who, who is made co- he's, he's put back on the throne by the Crusaders. Manuel's son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. He is put back on the throne right. in uh, 1203, uh, excuse me, uh, 1204, but he's deposed. And then uh, I think in February 8th, 1204, he is, he is killed by the people because they really, really don't like him. And like you said, the city is plundered. And it's at this point that Constantinople gets fractured into rump states like Nicaea, Epirus, Trezebon. So this once incredible power in the area gets gutted from within and it splits apart into several smaller kingdoms. So it's literally going to hell in a handbasket. And then the plague is going to come, which sets up a very weak Constantinople for 1453. So the uh, Latin Empire lasted about 60 years. Yeah. The last Latin Emperor, Baldwin II, sold the crown of thorns, oh, the real crown of no. thorns, Ray. You can do that. To the French to raise funds oh. to build an army, and that's how it ended up in Notre Dame. Okay. Uh, they wouldn't let me put it on no. when I was there last the year. Emperor took my mother a bit to Notre of Dame. Brisbane, they wouldn't let you put yeah. on sons yeah. of bitches. Emperor of Brisbane, Fucking just French. let me try it on. Right. I've I've heard that uh, it might fit. It might be a nice. <laughs> what fit. does that mean? What does that mean? What prophecy does that fulfill if it fits? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't think it's like Cinderella's oh, glass slipper. Okay, uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, going off. Yeah. Um. You know that, and I think that's just how Jesus would have wanted the weapon of his torture to be used right. uh, to raise funds to build an army. Pretty sure that's <laughs> one of the things he left in his last will and testament. Yard sale. Like when I'm gone, yeah. this thing that they stuck on my head that fucking hurts. <laughs> it does. Uh, you know, sell it uh, for as much money as you can, and then you raise an army to go and kill people. Would you do that? Thanks. That'd be great. <laughs> Uh, in 1261, the Byzantine Emperor Michael VIII Paleologos yeah. took control yes. again. But, of course, bad blood between the East and the West then continued for centuries. Right. There were several attempts to unify the churches, but it never worked out. In the 15th century, the Eastern Emperor John VIII Paleologos was getting pressed hard by the Ottomans, mm-hmm. and he asked Pope Eugene IV... Eugenius, who we've talked about, to help him unify the East and the West again because he needed the support of the West. That culminated in the Council of Florence, paid for by Cosimo that I mentioned. And they all shook hands, and the Eastern Church agreed to all of the Latin Church's demands. That's how desperate they were for support from the West to fight the Turks. Uh, The filioque, purgatory, unleavened bread, the Pope, you name it. Yeah, whatever you need. We'll suck your dicks, you know, let you you have sex with children and turn the other other cheek, (laughs) as Jesus said. Um, (laughs) You name it, anything you want. Hooray, the end of the Great Schism, which is why today you never hear of the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, It it, uh, reunified. With the Catholics in 1452. Oh no, wait, that's right. It never, 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 never went through. Never took. Didn't no, stick. Didn't. Yeah, yeah. But but there's good. Why didn't it stick? Well, right. there's going to be more to that in a second. Yeah. So I, I just want to mention. So after um, the Palia Lagos dynasty starts up again, um, you know, you've got the. Uh, You've got the plagues that hit in 1346 and 1349, and then there's its economy is ruined. So by the time you get to 1453, I mean, Constantinople is nothing more than just a series of walled villages. You know, it's got the Theodosian walls on the west. So so it's all pretty bad. So it's just a couple of square kilometers outside the city that it actually owns. You know, it's got like the uh, the Peloponnese. It's got the Princess Island uh, in the Sea of Marmara. So there's not much left of the actual Constantinople Empire. And this is what uh, Mehmed II is coming after. Yeah, so the the Bull of Union that was created during the Council of Florence in 1439, you know, again, they have to give in because they need, they need help really bad. But there are so many people in the East who don't want to go along with this because basically Rome is trying to 
established authority over all churches. And as far as I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, the church in the East doesn't want to rule the church in the West. They just want to be left alone and conduct affairs the way they see fit. And so when this when this uh, Council of Florence comes along, the Orthodox partisans, the laity, and some of the church leaders, they don't agree with this. So this union, this bull union that they've come up with, is ultimately going to fail because there's just not enough support in, in, in the East for it. Um, and so even this is not going to work. Yeah, the Greeks got back home and said but, to their people, yeah. hey, guess what? <laughs> We've reunified the churches. It's all going to be great. And the people were like, what? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> so they couldn't they couldn't sell couldn't it make to it the stay. people, basically. Yeah. They were like, Filioque and the sun? <laughs> Are you insane? <laughs> we're not saying that. Well, you, you do realize that it's just Jesus. Fuck <laughs> Jesus. When, Jesus got nothing to do with We're not giving this. him credit for right. shit. What's he done for me lately? Uh, well, you know, we did use his crown of... Th- he did give us permission to use his crown of thorns to raise funds to build an army. That's yeah, but how far did that get? Yeah, come on. So it never never went through, never took, and then the Turks invaded. Yeah. So when they did, Constantine Eleventh, as I said earlier, begged the West to help, and they said, oh, you remember that deal that we had? Yeah. We signed, we spent, you know, like years negotiating, and then you fucking screwed us? Payback, bitch. <laughs> Yeah, the, and they wouldn't right. support him. And Constantine's chief minister and military commander was happy about that. He is apparently uh, alleged to have said, "Better to see the turban of the Turks reigning in the center of the city than the Latin mitre." Oh wow! Oh my god! Wow! Yeah, we would Fuck rather all. have Turk <laughs> right. Muslims. Yeah, we would rather have Muslims controlling the city than Catholics. That's. That makes no sense. I mean, I mean, again, it's it's got. I, is it personal? Is it just that we are so right and you are so wrong, or you're worshiping God wrong that I would rather have the entire thing destroyed than than lose an argument to these people in the West? It's just it's just astounding. And they're going to pay the price for that arrogance. Well, yeah, yeah maybe is it arrogance? But maybe, maybe I mean, arrogance, I, but. not that they had much choice. I mean, the Catholics weren't coming. Man. Right. I mean, they they weren't going to come and support them. So. If I could, when it, and I'll just kind of get the ball rolling on the fall of Constantinople. So when Mehmed takes power, he was started building a second fortress just north of Constantinople. There was already one fortress there built by his great-grandfather, I believe. And so um, with the second fortress, he's going to be able to control the Bosporus, and this would be the, the beginning of the end of Constantinople. But he's going to do more than that. This guy is, like you said, he's 19 or 20 years old, whatever. He's going to take his time, set this up right, because he needs this city to fall. So the second fortress is completed in the summer of 1452. Like you said, Constantine the Eleventh writes to the Pope saying, look, I'll, I'll do anything you want. I will implement this union. Um and uh, I will do whatever you want. But here's the thing. The Pope in the West doesn't have nearly as much power as Constantine XI thinks that he has because the situation in the West is complete shit. You've got the Hundred Years' War going on. Militarily and economically, England and France are weak. Spain is all wrapped up in the Reconquista. They're spending all their, their military and their resources, you know, reconquering everything, getting rid of the Jews, that kind of stuff. There's infighting going on in the Holy Roman Empire. There's wars going on in Hungary and Poland. There's just a, not a lot that Western Europe can do about this. There are some troops here and there. There are going to be men sent, archers and things like that. But the the point we were making earlier is that the Theodosian Wall on the west-hand side of Constantinople, I think it's like 12 miles long, and they've got 60-foot moats, and they've got the harbor that we're going to go into, but they've only got 7,000 men roughly to put along that wall, and that's not nearly enough when it comes to Mehmed's 70,000 men. So they're completely lopsided, and the very young man took his time. He planned this out. He sets a large army in the Peloponnese to make sure no European, no massive European army that's not coming could come from the west and hit him in the back while he's attacking the city. He has planned this out thing out, but Constantinople is in a weak position in every way it can be, uh, as far as their morale, as far as money, as far as the military prowess, the, the level of the technology of their military me- machines, the number of ships, the number of cannon, everything. They are in a weak spot, and help is not coming from the West because they're equally screwed as well. According to legend, when uh, the the 
Turks were, uh, you know, on the on the verge of entering right. Constantinople. Constantine the Eleventh took off his royal robes and led an attack. Yes, on <clears throat> the Ottomans, where he was killed uh-huh. along with everybody else. Right. And because he'd taken off all of his royal robes and insignia, they couldn't identify oh, his body. Fuck me. Oh my the God. first body yeah. that they found that was wearing stil- stil- silk stockings mm-hmm. with an eagle embroidered in it was determined to be his. It was decapitated and marched around the city. Oh my God. And then everyone went, no, nah, that's <laughs> not him. Uh, listen. <laughs> I knew the guy. I've, yeah. Yeah. That that doesn't look like him. And so they were, well, what about this head? No, 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 still not him. What about this one? Picture it on no. the body. No? Okay. And this is where the Marble Emperor legend comes in. Oh. They decided that he'd been turned to marble and whisked away by an angel. Wow. Before he could be killed. Can we I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to do a little bit of information, a little bit of detail on the actual battle, because there's a moment in here where Mehmed has a moment that is worthy of Alexander the Great or Caesar. Even though he's 20 years old or whatever he is, he has this moment of sheer brilliance. And I didn't want to step on your your notes, whatever, but I, I just wanted to share it with everybody. Well, you can get to that yeah. in a second, but I wanted to ask you, do you know where the Ottomans come from? Ottomans, where do they come from? Um, Speaking of Caesar? No, I do not know. Tell me. Bithynia. Ah, my people. All right. <laughs> Where Caesar was a young The Queen man. of Bithynia <laughs> gave the world right. the Ottoman Empire. Maybe descended from uh, Caesar, taking it up the butt right. from the King of Bithynia. Possible. I don't know if it works that way. I don't hey, understand sex, but a, maybe. If there's a Jesus, that can work. it's possible. So, yeah. <laughs> the original Turkish tribal leader who died around 1323, his name was Osman. Donnie. Like Donny Osman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, had very, very big white teeth. Oh, uh, Osman, um, and and a, and a weird sexual relationship with, with his sister. Uh, sister. I'm getting turned on. And <laughs> the name Ottoman is sort of a bastardized anglicization of Osman. Oh, okay. So yeah, cool. So the Ottoman Empire started uh, just in the 1300s, early 1300s, because of this guy. We don't know much about him. Right. And, uh, you know, so within sort of 150 years, Damn. his his peeps, right. the Bithynians, had basically uh, were strong enough to take over wow. Constantinople. Aren't they the real chosen people? I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, come on. Yeah. 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 Your seed yeah, will yeah, rule yeah. the land. I mean, that's, come on. That's, that's pretty. And they held it for, what, 500 years? Not bad. Give, nearly. Not bad. Nearly. Yeah. yeah. Not bad. God's chosen people. Okay. Talk about your, talk about your battle. <laughs> yeah. So, again, so uh, Constantine the eleventh has got about 7,000 men. Mehmed's got about between 50 and 80,000. Mehmed's got between 12 and 62 cannon. He's got some cavalry. He's got 126 ships versus, I think it's like 20 or 26 ships of the defenders. But here's the thing. This is when the, uh, the, the level of technology and the Europeans start to come into this. So there's a European cannon maker named Orban who we just don't know anything about this guy. He's a man of mystery when it comes to the story of the fall of Constantinople. Anyway, he had designed, created, and built a 27-foot cannon that was able to hurl, uh, excuse me, that was able to hurl a 600-pound stone just over a mile. And he tries, he's a good European, he tries to sell it to the Byzantians who can't afford it because they don't have enough cash. But he is a businessman. So when the uh, the defenders can't buy it, they can't afford it, he goes to Mehmed and he goes, hey, I've got a deal for you. Mehmed does have the cash to pay for this thing. So when Mehmed comes to attack the Theodosian walls, uh, he has to attack there when it comes to land because that's the only part of the city that's not surrounded by water. So he encamps his army just outside of the city on Monday, just after Easter on April 2nd, 1453. 
Now, most of the uh, Ottoman army is just south of the Golden Horn, the major waterway just above Constantinople. But the European troops, or whoever that Constantine the Eleventh has, they're all stretched out along this length of walls. And there's a there's a Genoese officer who's in, in who's in command of them. So remember, there's a Genoese officer, and he's supposedly very good at his job. His men love him. He's he's got tactics and strategy down. So they've got a good guy in charge. Things are looking good now. Um, the Theodosian walls themselves had their own medium can cannon, but because they were such poor quality, whenever they would fire, they would kick back, and they would kick back so hard, they would actually end up damaging their own walls. So they realized pretty quickly that they can't use these cannon too much. So when they do return fire, when they do try to uh, repel the attackers, it's pretty much going to be by arrows, because their own cannons suck. So anyway, so you've got these, you've got these ships of Mehmed trying to get into the harbor, but they can't because there's this giant sea chain floating on logs protecting the harbor. So Mehmed can't use his 126 ships to come into the harbor and to attack that way. So Mehmed shows up himself on April the 5th, and he has these small elite teams. And what they do is just outside of the, of the Theodosian walls to the west, west of the city, they take all these smaller fortifications. They, 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 they make sure that there's no one there who's hiding there who might attack him from the rear, and they reinforce those positions. So now Mehmed's back is protected in case there's any European attack, but there's nothing coming because Western Europe is in a state of shit right now. So Mehmed's back is secure. He's got this massive army on the right-hand side. He's ready to attack now. Now, he starts using these 27-foot-long cannon that can hurl a 600-pound rock for just over a mile. He starts using them. But because there's no... There's nothing yet been designed. The, the European designed the cannon, but he didn't design anything to help reload them. So whenever they shoot the cannon, they have to muscle another 600-pound rock into the cannon. It's going to take three hours in between shots. And that gives the defenders a little bit of time to repair some of the damage that's done. But this is going to go on for a couple of weeks. So eventually the walls are getting weaker and weaker. Now, this sea chain is doing a great job. The fleet cannot sail and roll and row and ram into it and try to bust the chain. So there's nothing, there's nothing they can do. And the good news for the defenders is on April 20th, a small flotilla of about four ships braves their way through the Ottoman ships and they bring supplies to the city. So things are starting to look pretty good for them. But here's where Mehmed, and I don't know if it's him, I don't know if it's one of his generals or whatever, but he gets credit for it because he's the, uh, he's the king, he's the sultan. He outsmarts the chains. Again, worthy of Alexander the Great or Caesar, what he does, or what is decided, is they're going to cut down a whole bunch of trees, limb them up, and grease them. I'm already getting excited, but that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> what they do is they lay the trees down side by side, and you can roll things on them. You know, like if you were to lay down, you could roll on the trees, and you could roll, you, that kind of thing. So they take, I, mean, I think it's like hundreds of trees. And what they do is they put some of his ships on these logs, they roll it up a hill, they roll it down the other side of the hill, and by the time it gets to the bottom of the hill, and it's going at a pretty fast speed, you can't stop it, it sails right into the harbor behind the massive chain. So now that chain is practically useless because they've got ships in there. So the Constantine defenders see these ships coming in, they freak out. So they send out their own fire ships, which are lo loaded down with oil to attack. And, and we've talked about this before. Basically, you take your fire ship, you get it really close to the enemy ship, you set it on fire, you jump overboard, or maybe get on a boat and row the hell out of there, and your ship will burst into flame. It will probably catch their ships on fire, and voila, you know, you spend a couple of ships, and hopefully you've wrecked the navy of the of the enemy. So, but the Turks see this coming, the Ottomans see this coming, and they prepare themselves as best they can. So it doesn't work as well as the defenders thought it was going to. But 40 of the uh, people, 40 of the Christians are captured, and Mehmed either has them impaled in view of the city, or he takes them really close in the boats and he has their throats cut or something like that, trying to trying to freak out the uh, defenders. Constantine the Eleventh will not be uh, subdued by this. He has 260 Ottoman POWs, and he takes them to the city walls, and he either has their throats cut or he has them hung from the wall. So this is getting, this is getting intense. So 
even though the sea chain has been circumvented and has not been broken. So the ships that got inside are able to get up close to Constantine's seawall. So now that's being attacked. So some of the men from the land wall have to be transferred over there. And so the land wall defenses are now weaker than what they were. But things are still not happening fast enough. So Mehmed, again, orders, he wants something different done. So he orders that be tunnels be dug under the walls, and they're just going to put a bunch of barrels of gunpowder under there, light it, hopefully blow a giant hole in the wall, and they'd be able to rush in, and this is over with. But a volunteer, Johannes Grant, who was a German engineer, he predicted this, and he had actually been, he had actually begun digging counter tunnels, and they, they dig their tunnels, they get close to where they think the other guy's tunnels are at, they throw in Greek fire, a combustible compound, and they, and they use this to keep the uh, Ottomans out of their tunnels because there's too much heat in the tunnels. Eventually, some Turks are captured, they are tortured because these are all, after all, Christians doing this, and they give up the positions of their tunnels, so the Christians are able to go in there and destroy the Turkish tunnels, so that's not going to work. So, Mehmed's war council, you know, his uncles, his the nobles, the people who are supporting his war effort, they're not happy. Things are not going right, things are taking way too long, we're taking too many casualties, and again, it is possible that some European country could get its act together and send um, and send reinforcements. And the way it works with Constantinople, it's almost like sticking out on a little peninsula. If European troops were to come up behind Mehmed's forces, they would be trapped on land. There would be nowhere for them to go. So this is just not working out. So Mehmed gets all his troops together, and he wants to have one last massive attack. And I'm sure he gives a speech worthy of Shakespeare, and he probably ends it with, Allah is most great. So the point is, he gives his rousing speech, basically saying, this is it. We either do it or this is we're not, this is not going to work and we have to go home in shame. So just after midnight on May 29th, 1453, they launch their attack. Now, the walls in the northwest position of the Theodosian uh, walls, they're the earlier versions of the wall. And so they're a little weaker. They're not as, they're not as modern as the other ones. And the cannons there... Or, uh, managed to punch a hole in the wall. And like you said earlier, um, the Turks were able to rush into this war, uh, this hole in the wall, but then there was an intense counterattack. A lot of them are killed and they're pushed back. However, the Genoese general that the men loved and they would do anything for is wounded, and he's either seriously wounded or he dies or he dies later. Later, The Genoese troops and all the other troops along the wall see this. They panic they retreat from their part of the wall and they head to help, quote unquote, protect the harbor. So now there's this massive undefended hole in the wall, which sounds sexy. And uh, the Turks start pouring through. And like you said a second ago, supposedly Constantine the Eleventh himself leads his troop in trying to plug up this hole. He is killed. Some people say that he hung himself. Others say that he uh, he was murdered along with his men. But the point is, they get in at Constantine, uh, Constantinople Falls. There's three days of looting and violence. Thousands of women are raped. Everything of value is taken. There's random murder. And there were about 50,000 civilians inside Constantinople when it falls. After three days, Mehmed II calls for calm. The survivors of the city are sold off into slavery, and supposedly, and I don't really believe this, but supposedly Mehmed looked around at all the damage and all the death and destruction, and he supposedly wept. I'm having a hard time believing that, but his great enterprise has been successful, and now the Byzantine Empire, the last of the Roman Empire, is no more. But it wasn't the last of the Roman Empire, because what title did Mehmed take after the fall of Constantinople? Oh, I don't know. Byzantine Empire? I don't he know. He claimed the title of Caesar. Mm. Oh, that's salt in the wound. <laughs> Ouch. He goes, no, <laughs> Roman Empire's still going. This is me. I am darker. now Caesar. I'm a little darker, but I'm yeah. a Caesar. Go, go, yeah. Muslim Caesar. Right. The first Muslim Caesar. Um, and uh, right. with regards, just to wrap up this episode, yeah. with regards to the status of the Great Schism, uh, he allowed the Eastern Orthodox Church to continue nice. independently, uh, supported them. That's what they wanted. Uh, as long as they, yeah. as long as they accepted Ottoman rule, they were ha- they, they were able to continue, and uh, which is more than they would have got if they'd yes. done a deal with the Catholics. Absolutely, they would have had to all basically convert Kiss to Catholicism. Ass. Right. 
Um, so we have the Muslim Caesar, Sultan Mehmed II, <laughs> Mehmed the Conqueror, right. as he's known, to thank for the Eastern... And, by the way, the Russian Orthodox Church, too. So um, what happened around about this stage is the Russian Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church in Russia, which was part of the Eastern Orthodox Church, was sort of granted autonomy Uh, by the Patriarch in Constantinople. You go do your own thing, run your own (laughs) ship, you know, stick to the script, but you do your own thing. So that's kind of when these two separated around about this time. Um, we're, 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 you're probably not going to hear a lot from us because uh, we're either going to be taken over by the Catholics or the Muslims, so you go do your own thing. And right. that's how we ended up with the Russian Orthodox Church. <laughs> yeah. So, good good, uh, good battle description there, Ray. No, well done. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the episode. But, and you might, you might be wondering, what the fuck's all this got to do with uh, <laughs> Gutenberg and books? Right. <laughs> oh, it's 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 connected. Well, it's connected. We will explain that in the next episode how this ties into Gutenberg. Right. See you next week, folks. Pips. Be nice to each other. Yes. Pedophiles. Pedophile. Not hot. Repeat. Not hot. Baby hand. Baby. Baby hand. Pedophile. Baby hand. Pedophile. Baby and pedophile. Oh my beer. No, I, I yeah, no, I, I yeah. I cried about pillow. Not to mention a vagina. You're a complete monster, and I hope hell is real, and I hope you're there. <laughs>